0: You are listening to the Social Hotelier show, a podcast that inspires hoteliers to create meaningful and memorable experiences for their customers in pursuit of their passion. We share our views and experiences relating to hospitality, technological trends, and also relating to humanity.
1: Here is your host, Sam Eric Rutman.
0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Social Hotelier podcast with me, Sam Eric Rutman. My guest today is an adventurer, an explorer who traversed with her husband the entire Antarctic continent in 2005 and earned a Guinness World Record. But before we bring her to this show, I'm excited to announce that I'll be joining the Mediterranean Tourism Forum, themed Low Impact Investment Favor Everyone. Acronym is LIFE. The forum and the masterclass are held in November 21st until 23 this year, in 2023, in Malta. So if you are interested and you're in Europe and you are interested to join this forum, which will be attended by a couple of thousand participants, just go to www.medtourismforum.com to find out more. I will be posting some uh, episodes from the event and also some interviews, so these can be also viewed uh, on my YouTube channel and Instagram, and also here on my podcast channel. But that, enough about that advertising, but now I'm so excited to bring today episode to bring Robin Woodhead, the co-founder at White Desert Antarctica, an aviation and luxury camp operator and pioneer in advocating for responsible governance of this remote region. So welcome, Robin. Thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's uh, Sam Eric, It's really nice to see you again and a pleasure to be here and um hopefully educate and share some of my um, experience with all of you.
0: Great. So um, I know that you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you have, uh, you have your, the season has started for you. But to get a little bit about the background, can you tell me how it all got started? What has been the inspiration since your childhood for visiting away places and eventually you explored both North Pole and South Pole?
1: That's correct. Well, I guess... It all started when I was a kid and uh, when I was six years old, my parents actually took us out of school for a year um, and we traveled around the world and they they said to us that we were collecting memories and experiences over things and I think that as a, a young person really stuck with me and by the time I was 13 years old, I'd traveled to over 90 countries so travel really is in my DNA so I was always trying to understand different cultures, local communities. And I think it's it's fostered a sense of curiosity about our world and humbleness about our place in in the magnitude of nature. So that's where my my love for travel really started. But um, to answer your question about how I got into Antarctic and, and polar tourism, because it is quite a, a niche market, back in 2005, my then boyfriend and I masterminded recreating the um, Shackleton Nimrod expedition, which went from one part of the Antarctica by vehicle to the South Pole. Um, and I guess much like their expedition a hundred years prior to us, it was doomed to failure. And I think failure is often where you have your, your greatest learnings in life. And it very much was that for me. So I ended up being stuck in a tent on my own in Antarctica for three months. And this was 20 years before the whole world went into COVID isolation. So I guess I had some valuable learnings to share with people during COVID, but more than learning about being you know, at peace with myself in my place in, in the magnitude of nature, it showed me that nobody was traveling to the interior of this very, very special otherworldly place. And it was just the odd scientist who ventured into the interior of Antarctica and the odd explorer like myself. And I thought, why can't we take some of the global change makers to this very special place, show them this amazing natural environment and try and encourage them to be ambassadors for its future conservation. And that was, you know, 18 years ago. And where it all started was quite naively, like I think a lot of these things. We, um, I was a, I'm a Cape Tonian from South Africa, and I happened to, to stumble across a scientific operator that took scientists into Antarctica. So I said to them, can we buy some seats on your plane, please? And they said, well, yes, but there is a permitting process to going to Antarctica. So that's when the learning started of how the Antarctic Treaty works, how IATO works, but essentially, we bought four seats on a Russian cargo plane, and we took the chef from our wedding, and we flew into Antarctica, and that was our first trip, and that's how it all all started eighteen years ago.
0: Well, that's that's amazing. I think what you initially alluded to—that you have uh, through your parents had got this uh, inspiration to travel to places and uh, it's really a humbling experience and if you are willing to absorb and learn about the culture, I mean you that is uh, life learning and uh, you, we have met earlier in, a, in an event and uh, I shared my story at the time about uh, uh, my stumblings and, uh, and what I keep, uh, kept learning and so I got very inspired about what you were saying so that I think we have some, we have some, some DNAs here in common that we are exploring the unknown but then we also were wanting to learn about ourselves and share those experiences to others but i think you have done something on a very different level which i'm so inspired and excited to hear about and then that you're bringing some uh, change makers to to this uh, pristine and fragile region it's th- something very very special
1: thank you i i th- i think it is very special but i think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is everywhere is special right and and everywhere is, is needing to be more harmonious with nature and our relationship with nature. I think we all need to come back to that very simple truth that we are nature, and you don't necessarily have to go to a place like Antarctica to experience that very special oneness with our planet. But going to a place that, frankly, contains 70% of the world's water um, and looks like another planet on this one is such a transformative emotional experience that you can't not be shifted by it. You know, I've been almost, uh, I haven't actually counted, but over the 18 years, I've probably been close to 50, 60 times to Antarctica. But every single time I go, I have a new and unique experience and quite a profound fundamental shift in, in myself. Um, And it's that humbleness that you were talking about earlier um, that is the most important, I think, element for us as humans and to understand our place in the world.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, So uh, maybe that kind of uh, we can move over then to what led you to find the White Desert Antarctica with your husband when you did the testing and uh, almost like a pilot project. But how did you come about then to? put it all together, because it's a quite logistically, I mean, it's a very, one thing is that you travel yourself, but then that you're bringing uh, what do you call customers or change makers to these kind of events who are paying for this. What does it take to do that?
1: Everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, so maybe the easiest way is, is to break it down with a little bit of a explanation about the complexities of and the privilege of operating in you know, what is regarded as the world's most fragile and remote environment. Um, I guess it was foolhardy of us in the start to go there and decide that this place was um, magnificent enough and worthy of us to try and take other people there. But the, the barriers to entry, shall we say, are um, ma- massive. So first of all, we had to humbly appear at the British Foreign Office. So there's There's no one country that owns Antarctica. That's what makes it so very special. It's governed by something called the Antarctic Treaty. And when it was originally signed, 12 countries signed up to the Antarctic Treaty, and it now has 52 countries that are signatories of that very special treaty. And essentially what it stands for is that there is no military activity in Antarctica, only science and peace and responsible tourism And that's a really, I'll just pause there for a moment, it's the only one of its kind on this planet. It's a bit like the United Nations, but shall I say rather more effective where everyone does genuinely work together. And sitting underneath the Antarctic Treaty is an organization called IATO, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators. So everyone that wants to go to Antarctica, be it a, you know, a tourist and a scientist, they have to apply to one of those treaty parties to get a permit. And to, in order to get a permit, they have to do very complex uh, environmental impact assessments to ensure that they have zero impact on the fragile environment. And what I mean by zero impact is you essentially are leaving just your footprints behind. Um, and in our case, we when we founded the, the business back in 2006, we wanted to go a little bit further than that, because for me, uh, not only is travel in my DNA, but sustainability and trying to tread as lightly as possible is also in my DNA. And back then in 2006, the idea of carbon offsetting was very unheard of. And obviously now it's almost like a dirty word and you need to go much further and do carbon sequestering and net zero. And of course, we're on that journey now. But back in 2006, we were the first operator in Antarctica, and in fact, the first on the continent to be carbon neutral, because for me, it felt like such an important element of the privilege of operating there. Um, But you mentioned the logistics. And yes, they are extremely complex. There's no corner shop in Antarctica. You can't go and buy you know, a Coca-Cola, if you've forgotten enough and your guest wants one. And um, I think I gave you the example, Sam, Merrick, before of the Coca-Cola can. And if I can just take you through the journey of a can of Coke getting to a guest at the South Pole, it'll give you a taste of, of those logistics. So you buy the can of Coke in, in Cape Town for what I would imagine is about $2 or thereabouts in local currency. And then that goes on to a ship called the SA Agalas II, which is the boat we use, which is the South African government's vessel, and we buy a lot of um, cargo space from them. That then gets transferred the 2,500 miles south to the edge of a place called the Ice Barrier, which is about 150 feet high. And then a massive crane has to lift that can of Coke onto the ice shelf, and then It's got to be loaded into a tracked vehicle, which has a ground-penetrating radar attached to the front of it to check for crevasses, which are basically holes in the ice. So you you don't want to fall through those, basically. (laughs) And then it traverses another 500 kilometres to get to our runway, Wolfsfang. And then from Wolfsfang runway, it gets transferred on a smaller plane, a Basler plane, which is currently on its way down from northern Canada all the way down to Antarctica for the season. So that plane will then transfer that can of Coke to the South Pole station, which is a further seven-hour flight for you to take a sip of the can of Coke at the South Pole, and the cost of of that per can now is $35 per can, the the actual cost price. So that's just a can of Coca-Cola. And then you've got to do it in reverse to take the can of coke out of Antarctica, so that you leave nothing behind.
0: Well, thinking about Coca-Cola <laughs> now, no. <I'm laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm really glad that you go through this because it really describes the logistics and the organisation that is needed to to put this all together. But how how big is your team? I mean, uh, that uh, you work with uh, when you. Uh, develop this, you know, when you have this program, you must have a, it's not you and your husband, you have, must have sure how, besides the pilots and everybody else, there must be some other people who are involved. So, can you share a little bit very about much. the organization? Because it's quite fascinating.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, back when it started, it was just myself and Patrick, and as I mentioned earlier, the um, the chef from our wedding who'd never seen snow before. And, um, and, funnily enough, my first client was, in fact, my father. Um, and some of his friends because he's such an avid traveler Um so I was very grateful to have that opportunity to to pilot the project but now we employ um, 150 people during the season um, and it is from 18 different nationalities and it is very much like the United Nations you know we we do have you know Chinese staff working alongside Russian staff dare I say working alongside Ukrainian staff it's the one place in the world where, you know, everybody gets on for two reasons. A, they respect one another's very, very honed skill set because we have people that are, you know, from chefs to, as you say, pilots to the guy that operates that ground-penetrating radar on that tracked vehicle that takes that Coca-Cola can um, to our refuel station staff. You know, so so we really do employ a, a variety of people but they respect one another's differences. And I think also because they are stuck in this remote environment, they have to get on for survival reasons. So that is a, a big incentive to to get on. But we do, you know, we do tend to employ a certain type of personality. People that that are not afraid of taking risks but have a very clear understanding of safety protocol. You know, we wouldn't want to employ anyone who was irrational in their decision-making. Um, you know, myself and, and Patrick have very good psychometric, um, you know, management skills in a crisis. So you know, in, if there is some minor crisis, we're very good at, at fixing it and adapting and adjusting. And that's a very important part of, of operating and such. Staying calm. When, when things are not going quite right. You know, you can't control the weather in a place like Antarctica, but you can tr- control your reaction to the weather and ensuring everybody's safety and ensuring, you know, we've had some very demanding, wealthy, ultra-high net worth clients that are stuck in a storm, for example, and it's up to our team to say to them, no, we can't fly safely to the South Pole or to the Emperor Penguin colony today it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, the answer is still no. It's about your safety. So, you know, our staff all very much, um, you know, they're, they're friends um, because they have to rely on one another very yeah. heavily.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, could you speak about uh, the kind of travelers uh, that uh, your program attract? You already mentioned something, but can you just give a little bit more insight? And I'm particularly interested... Uh, but if you think, because it has also affected you, I mean the the changes in yourself and what you learn about yourself, I'm interested how the these people who are, for the first time in their life, joining on this program, how some examples of how it may have affected them that they are in this very special environment.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's actually one of the main reasons why. I'm, I'm passionate and I love what I do because I see the shift that takes place in the, you know, the, the people that we share this immense privilege with. So I think the first thing to say is that there is no one, you know, type of, of demographic of client that we, we take to Antarctica. You know, these are, are people that have generally traveled to much of the world and have see, sort of almost seen, seen a lot of the world. And for a lot of them, they want to do something completely different. And they want to, um, to, to almost... Some of them don't even know what they want when they're going. They just want to get to the South Pole from almost a psychological perspective to stand at the lowest point on the planet um, to perhaps get some perspective. But what normally happens to them is they get a lot more than just, oh, I've been to Antarctica, and that that's something nice I want to share with my friends. Most of them have quite profound shifts in themselves, because a lot of our clients are self-made entrepreneurs who are used to being surrounded by people that say yes to, you know you know, they are the natural leaders of our world, shall we say. And when they come to Antarctica, quite often they realize just how small we are, when compared to a place that is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest place on the planet. As I said earlier, it's a bit like how I would imagine life on Mars would be. So, And we actually have had a lot of astronauts that have, have come to our camp. So we actually are popular with, with people um, that are looking at off-world you know, human travel. But for now, this planet is, is still pretty extraordinary and we should try and preserve this one. And that's one of the lessons I try and teach them gently with their interaction with nature. But I'll give you a funny example. Many years ago, we had this, um, this American gentleman who owned one of the world's biggest online gambling companies and he'd never really taken a day off work in his life. Um, and he was used to getting things done in the way he liked them done, shall we say and he came to Antarctica and the weather turned bad and it was a situation where he could not charter a plane to come and fetch him. He could not get home. He was stuck for a few days in Antarctica. And the shock was immense for him as a human to surrender control. And he actually cried, you know, in my arms for, for a few days I think mainly because he was out of control, but then it started dawning on him that we are all somewhat out of the control of nature. We are just a part of nature. And interestingly, after that very difficult trip for him, he actually loved it so much that he came back with his friends and family the next year. So it really did shift his way of looking at the world. And he wanted to help preserve Antarctica and dedicate time, energy and resources to scientific work. And that's really what we mean by creating a corpse of ambassadors, a place that shifts you. And you then go and spread the word about how important this place that is ground zero for climate change actually is.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, I just thought about this when you talked about this gentleman that it is such a shift from having full control and they are hugely successful in materialistic things if you will and then when you are in the mercy of the nature where they have absolutely no control they have to just be humble and accept them. it can be a very difficult uh, situation for them and then that emotionally must be very very challenging for them but then uh, that in mean, this case he, he overcame that i mean he became sort of that change maker himself and and then uh uh, bring his uh, friends and guests and so on yeah I mean I was just thinking about Mars also I mean the practicalities about uh, tra- traveling there uh, I'm always thinking about food because I love food <laughs> how, how do you plan what you're going to eat there when you're on a on a trip like that so you don't have to go yeah. ask for a coke uh, suddenly when you're you can't have one
1: yes no it's and funny enough, when you were speaking there i was I was wanting to to add in you know this particular client, even though he was stuck in a storm in Antarctica, the food is magnificent. So you know that is and often people you know, when they're in remote environments, they seek comfort in um, food. and also because it's so cold, your body you know requires the extra calories. But our menu has been honed like a, like a chemistry experience over the past 18 years. So we do have some really incredible chefs that work for us. Um, and when the one season ends, we start preparation from a food perspective for the next season. So a lot of our, our menu, and we serve three-course meals, and we serve tasting menus. And, mm. you know, it's a full English breakfast in the morning um and obviously we're very used to dealing with quite complex dietary requirements yes but we ensure that we ask on our very very complex um signing in process with our guests is it a preference or is it an allergy because if someone sees someone else eating some delicious avocado on toast in the morning and they haven't specified that you know they they don't eat bacon they'll only eat avo it's it's quite tricky to bring more avo in for that same trip right yeah. so so, so we have to know upfront what the dietaries are, but, you know, we have a team of incredible chefs who create the menus and actually we test the menus throughout the year and tweak them. Um, yeah. But a lot of the food is pre-made in South Africa and we remove all packaging before it travels to Antarctica and then we, you know, we, we complete the meals when they're out there because obviously it's it's easy to keep things frozen in antarctica right yeah so so for that it, it, the difficult part is the fresh food and the beautiful garnishes and fruit and all that so so we have you know extremely efficient cold storage management but we, it's about bringing our fresh produce in that's that's rather more complex and we bring those in on the ship but also on our our regular weekly flights that bring our clients in every 8 days there's there's fresh food and and that comes in so yes the menu is is one of the more complex parts i'm yeah. also a foodie I, I love food and i won't compromise on on what food i eat so and i know our guests have exacting taste and it's a pleasure to be able to serve them a magnificent meal in the most remote place right it's
0: yeah how about special. then sort of uh, the hygiene factor uh, human waste everything that you uh, bring there i mean just to keep yourself uh, I mean, they, they are, I assume they're about for a week or something about those trips. So uh, just the practicality, uh, showers or bathing and then just uh, those kind of morning routines and uh, bringing back all that. I, I'm sure you must have bring back all the waste away from there, isn't it? So could you just uh, dig a little bit deep on that, how, how it actually works?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, as I said, sustainability has always been a big part of, of who I am as an individual, and so therefore who the business is, and I think it's vitally important in a place like Antarctica that's so fragile. And actually, I believe every place needs to be as responsible and have as low impact as they possibly can on the on the natural environment. So, um, you know, we, we we use solar power to heat our water at our, our master camp, uh, signature camp, Witchaway, and our standard eight day trips. Um, a group of guests will be staying there. And we, we sort of have what we call shower hours. So we heat the water, but we ask people to be mindful of their water usage, not because there's a lack of water, but because we then use a filtration system to filter the water so that it goes back into the earth. And we use biodegradable products there. So we just want to be as mindful as, as possible about creating as, as small a quantity of grey water that we then filter back. So it's it's about raising people's consciousness and educating them about that, and then everybody always asks me this question. So I'm going to dive right into it, um, Sam Eric. Um, you know, how do you go to the the bathroom in Antarctica? And it, I guess it, it harks back to that um, the NASA astronaut aspect of outer space living. We actually use um, NASA filters on our, our bathroom systems. So. We have to tell our guests to make every poop count because they cost $5.70 <laughs> and we then seal them hermetically and we, we ship them out of Antarctica. So that's And then we recycle all our waste back in South Africa. So whatever we bring in, we take out um, and it, it goes across the supply chain.
0: Okay. Oh, wow. This is a very interesting. Uh Let's move over into that uh, ice cube project that you talked have mentioned earlier, and your involvement. Can you just share uh, what has been your involvement and what is it all about?
1: Sure. I mean, when we started um, back in two thousand six, we bought some seats off a scientific uh, aeroplane. Correct. I, I think we, we mentioned earlier. So now, actually, scientific work, you know, they are the only natural, local community of Antarctica. So we respect them immensely. And we try to collaborate and share logistics with them wherever possible. Because I feel, what's the point of having two planes going into a fragile environment when you can have one, right? And in our case, we were the first operator to trial sustainable aviation fuel in 2021. And we're now trying to gently encourage the scientific community to make that switch to sustainable fuel. And as part of that, uh, our operations now comprise of 50% scientific work. So we transport a lot of scientists with us into Antarctica. And this previous year, we started transporting some of the scientists to the NSF, um, to the American base at the South Pole, um, which NSF stands for National Science Foundation. And um, it's such fascinating work, some of the work that they do at the South Pole. And my son can probably explain this to you better than I can, because he's a bit of a young scientist, but I'll, I'll do my best. So, you know, we transport scientists all over the continent to, to do some really incredible work, not just stuff like um, climate change research and penguin research, obviously, which is a, a big topic at the moment with the global influx of avian flu, and we've got very stringent, um, you know, avian flu regulation in particular for the season, so we can, fingers crossed, not not contaminate any birds there. But the Ice Cube project is all about neutrinos, and they're tiny particles, um, and they pass through mat- most matter undetected. I mean, essentially... It would be easy, they're the particles that surround black holes, okay, is the easy, simple way to explain it. But exploding stars and black holes are too far away at the moment for us humans to study these particles, right? But they're the particles that are are regarded as the sort of origins of existence, origins of, of Milky Ways and solar systems. So obviously it's too extreme to get there But the one place in the world where you can study neutrinos and actually essentially detect them is in the ice. So when they move, they appear like flashes of light through the ice. And these sensors that they have at the South Pole with very little, um, you know, it's 24 hours sunlight in Antarctica in the summer months and 24 hours darkness. So it's a very stable environment, and there's very little air pollution so there's nothing to interfere with their studying of these extraordinary particles. And that's just one example of some of the scientific work that they do there. Um, you know, and the Ice Cube records like 2,600 events a second. So it's, it's on a magnitude that is it's quite difficult to comprehend. But it's such exciting work. It's, it's work that's vitally important for our planet and understanding other solar systems. So, you know, but, but there's so much science that, that goes on in Antarctica. I mean, fun fact, Antarctica's also got some of the world's most incredible and largest meteorites um, hmm. because, and, and especially now, this is the sad part of, of climate change, with some of the increased ice melt, we're starting to see more and more meteorites become exposed in, you know, Antarctica. So there really is, you know, we support the, the, the British Antarctic Survey, BAS, with their scientific work. Chinese, Americans, Germans, and as I said, it makes up 50% of, of our operations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Well, I think this could be f- a complete episode for another time, but <laughs> it's so fascinating. Uh, you were recently in, in New York attending the Climate Week. Could you uh, maybe talk about uh, what were some uh, takeaways or big outcomes out of that, that week? Because I understand you were participating in, in a panel and maybe did some keynote speaking there also.
1: That's right. Yes, it was um it was a couple of weeks ago and it was really really exciting to be amongst some of the global change makers in the sustainability space but also in the governance space. So um a big part of what I do as an individual is um I've been part of this organization IATO for the last 18 years since we started operating. And for the past 5 years I've been in a leadership role sitting on the essentially the board of Antarctic tourism. And the past year up until last year, I was the um, chair of the executive committee. And while I was in that role, I helped create and implement Antarctica's first climate change strategy, policy, targets, and measures. So essentially, a how to and toolkit. For every single operator in Antarctica. So not trying to name and shame the stragglers of the industry, trying to uplift people, give them the tools of how to achieve net zero by 2050, 2030. What are the latest technologies? And also start with the scientific baseline. So I think the reason I was invited to New York for Climate Week was to speak on a panel about progressive governance in a sustainability space. And it was just such an extraordinary event you know i met five presidents while i was there and i was speaking alongside um, and these were two to countries that are at the cutting edge of climate change so you know barbados for example pleading with and it was also the week that there was the unep meeting so the president of barbados then went to the um, to the us to plead for uh, repatriation funds so climate you know climate impact funding from the government and I was sitting alongside the um, one of the senior government members of the Seychelles talking about their issues and how they've overcome some of the climate change you know, issues that they're facing and, and also the reality of needing to adapt as humans. Um, and I know it sounds like a negative thing to say to adapt, but we have to adapt, we also have to empower, we have to seek hope. And I think one of the biggest takeaways was of the whole week was we actually do have the solutions we need to, to be okay as a species. Um, it's just about everyone everywhere implementing them at exactly the same time. You yeah. know, we, we had so many interesting diverse conversations while we were there. Um, and I was actually there cause I was up for a change maker award, but you know, everyone there was a change maker. Everyone was passionate, and trying to show people that they don't need to be powerless. You know, that was one of my key messages was, I actually used the example of the the microscopic krill, um, which in Antarctica forms the the base of the food chain of the, the ocean, the southern ocean. And when they're sort of individuals, they are microscopic. But if you put them together, they have a massive weight, and they form that important base. So I think everyone always thinks, let's leave it to governments. Let's leave it to big corporates. Let's, let's just forget about it because it's too overwhelming. But I think the big takeaway was no, every wild space matters. Every wild space on the roof of your you know, New York apartment matters, start exactly where you are and let's just get on with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Okay, again, a little bit back to the uh, White Desert Antarctica. Uh, what are some of the long-term plans that you have, for, or goals or aspirations for for the company? Uh, I mean, you started already quite some time ago. Uh, looking looking ahead, what are your the vision you have with your husband about this uh, business?
1: Yeah, it's um, obviously my, my overarching vision for Antarctica is to ensure that we do. Um, continue to operate responsibly, and we, we try and encourage the scientific community to be, you know, as responsible as possible. those switches that I mentioned to sustainable fuel, help them how to make that transition, show them, you know, yes, it's expensive to make these transitions, but we have no choice. Um, we must. And I think also another overarching goal is to ensure that that very special Antarctic Treaty um, continues. So unlike the the Arctic, which, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of geopolitical power plays going on right now and drilling and mining and all those uncomfortable uh, resource extraction conversations are happening and being done. You know, in the South, we have this unique situation of that Antarctic Treaty that is due to, to be up for renewal in 2048. And it sounds like a long way away, but actually we have to, as a species, ensure that, we maintain some wild places. Um and, you know, and we also worked when I was in the governance role on the marine protected area around Antarctica, the world's biggest marine protected area. And there's currently three new marine protected areas that are up for potential ratification by you know the Antarctic Treaty government. So trying to ensure that we can conserve the oceans surrounding Antarctica that contain those vital krill for survival to be, you know, not fished to be cherished and, you know, to allow the whale numbers to continue to thrive. You know, we we implemented an amazing um, speed limit for all operators in Antarctica a few years ago to ensure that whales' numbers um, increase. And it has shown massive number, in, you know, increase in, in whale numbers. So we'd like to continue to do more projects like that at an overarching level. And then taking it back to a micro level, you know, as I mentioned, I am a South African and, you know, carbon sequestering is, I think, becoming a very important part of the future of, of you know, saving our planet. And we have an abundance of kelp, wild kelp in South Africa. So we're very much looking to try and invest in, in kelp farms and carbon sequestering projects there and engaging our guests in that, potentially in the form of a foundation where we can, you know, they can give back, along the gateway to Antarctica as well as just Antarctica. Um, So that's a big thing for me. But I also feel, you know, I've been doing this for 18 years and maybe I've got some learnings I can share in other parts of the world and maybe it's time to leave something on the table for the next guy and, and help in other places. Because I think there's one thing I learned in New York now, there's a lot of different environments in the world that... Even though I'm a specialist in Antarctica, if you can do it in Antarctica, you can pretty much do it anywhere, right? So, so I think I can actually add value and, and help in other regions of the world. So I think for me personally, sustainability and government, governance might be an area that I'm, I'm going to personally shift into. But who knows what the future will hold, right? You've got to create yeah. your own future.
0: Absolutely. But I can see that that could be an excellent uh, way forward for, with your experience already. I mean, there are parts of the world that uh, has a long way to go uh, in, in all these aspects. Well, uh, you know, so. uh, part of my listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs and I have uh, uh, hotel school students and uh, uh, and so on. And uh, there's always that question, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs looking to enter the, the uh, luxury hospitality of sustainable tourism industry because luxury sometimes uh, considered unsustainable, but there is other aspect of the way you're doing which has has a uh, sustainable feature. But generally, what uh, what advice could you give to some uh, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs who would like to enter into this industry?
1: Yeah, or maybe to my my younger self as well, right? So um, I think the. The first thing about being entrepreneurial is you have to not be afraid of taking risks. That's the first first thing. And the second part of that is you have to ignore all the naysayers because it's very easy for, for people to say, oh, that's never going to work or, or that's too niche or no one's done that before. So what makes you think you can do it? So I think you've got to be very clear about your vision and and work really hard on understanding your the, the market. So in the sort of luxury ecotourism space, you know, you have to look very carefully at what are the outliers doing? What are the innovators doing? Um, you know, like when you and I, Sam Eric, were together in Montenegro a few months ago, you know, ecotourism and very much... Um, Temporary luxury that can be transported to other places in the world, as opposed to bricks and mortar buildings. You know, where is the, where is the real innovation happening? And a lot of it is you've got to listen to yourself and to to what your 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 target audience doesn't quite know they want yet. Right? It's it's about changing behavior, um, and I think the most important thing is survival. Right? So so you've got to put up you know two hundred percent of yourself in any in any project, in any business, be it ecotourism, be it something else. Anything entrepreneurial requires everything of yourself to yeah. make it work. And That's... once you've put that everything into it, you've got to survive for long enough to monetize that. you know, sometimes it takes a bit of time to convert. From a passion project into a successful business. But I do believe that passion and profitability go hand in glove and they are the most important ingredients. You know, if you don't care about your idea or your product, no one else will. So you have to get it right and you have to test it on people and potentially do a pilot project before you go all in. Yeah. um to get it right but you know there, there's no one way of doing anything it's you know it's it's listening to yourself as well and um and stopping the noise to to go within yourself and to understand you and what you think you can bring to the world
0: yeah, and then I mean, do it right <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean it's so important that uh, you follow your heart and you follow your passion and uh, there, there will be so many naysayers around you that they want to, uh, that's always that one that is uh, in in your ear all the time. So resisting that and not giving up, never, never give up. Yeah, so true. Well, that's a very... Great, uh, great advice, Robin. Okay, a little bit the final thing, it would be more about uh, what inspires you. Uh, what are the things that inspires you? And uh, are there any books or mentors or experience that have had a significant impact on your journey? I mean, I can see that everything has had an impact on your journey, but there's something else <laughs> that you'd like to add to this.
1: Yeah, everything has had an impact on my journey. You're quite right. You know, starting, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I think my parents have had a profound impact on me. They both, you know, have worked extremely hard in their lives. They they don't really believe in luck. They believe in opportunism. Um, you know, so so seeing a moment that could present a big shift and taking that with both hands and jumping into it but essentially, you know, they were the ones that instilled that nothing is going to replace extreme hard work. Um, and, yes, I'm an avid reader. When I was um, about eight years old, my father used to read me The Economist. Um, so, you know, understanding business is, was a very important asset for me. And, um, and actually now my favorite publication that I read every single week without fail is not The Economist anymore because it makes me feel... Uh, pressured if I've missed a week and I'm, I'm behind on the news in the Economist, but actually the new scientist I find fascinating and it expands um, expands my perspective on you know on on thinking laterally really and looking at problems in a different way. Be it a medical, be it you know not just focused on the travel world. Uh, <clears throat> and when I was at university, I funnily enough studied the South American authors. So the likes of Gabriel Garcia Marquez who when he passed away I was I had a mourning period because I was brought up as a young adult on those books and and that whole world of magical realism and creating um you know magnificent worlds I think that's been you know a big influence on me and then I'm a big science um science fiction fan so I'm a big Star Wars fan and a big you know Star Trek fan and I think that's also influenced my um you know, otherworldly m- space fascination, and the the work I've done with you know with astronauts, and I've also been inspired by by a lot of my clients, you know, as well. So when we had Buzz Aldrin come to Antarctica, he was incredibly inspirational for me. And then a few years later, we had another signed uh, another astronaut called Terry Virts, who I think he gets mildly bored with you know mere mortal conversation. <laughs> But, you know, I learned so much, and I think the most important thing I can say is surround yourself by people that you feel inspired by and in awe of. And, you know, when I was stuck in that tent back in six I, five, I only had two books with me. And the, the one book was The Story of Dorian Gray, which, you know, I annihilated quite quickly, but it was quite a fascinating, you know, book to read. But the other one was Stephen Hawking's, and... Um, It was great because I read that book seven times and on the seventh read I sort of understood about, yeah, 50% of it, you know. So I believe in always pushing yourself and and learning and never stop learning and be it from, you know, a Bhutanese monk on the side of a, you know, walk you do in, in remote Bhutan or be it, you know, a beggar on the side of the road who's made a life choice. You can learn from everyone and every single situation that you have. Most of all, I think I learn from my children every day. You know, I've got a teenage girl and an almost teenage boy, and they teach me very valuable lessons, again, about patience and being humble every day.
0: <laughs> That's very good. Well, Robin, it has been a wonderful discussion, and I just want to... Uh, if people want to find out more about you and, or reach out to you and ask for some advice or the White Desert Antarctica, how can they do so? Where, are, where, where should they go to reach out to you?
1: Sure. Well, for me, for me individually, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on any other social media platform. I, am, I, I happen to be a relatively private person, shall we say. But for any questions or professional advice, you know, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My name is Robin Woodhead. And for the business that I founded, um, it's White Desert, White Desert Antarctica for Instagram. And then our website is white-desert.com. And we're on Facebook and all the other platforms. But reach out. I would love to hear and have any questions from young entrepreneurs. What a pleasure.
0: Very good uh you have mentioned and i have a follow you on linkedin obviously and i just saw that you have that condenast has recognized your activities for an award can you maybe just uh, give a little bit of a plug for that
1: yes thank you that i'm very glad you mentioned it yes condenast um has just given us a reader's choice award which is such an amazing privilege because it's it's nominated by the readers themselves so i'm extremely proud of that and i think it's um it's testament to what I was mentioning to you know aspiring entrepreneurs is just to to keep doing what you're doing, be authentic, um, don't be afraid to be niche, and eventually you you might be able to get some incredible recognition for you know the products and the the approach that you have created. And I feel very honoured and proud of that one. So thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, thanks. Nadia. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks, Robin. And I appreciate that you joined this episode. It was a privilege and honor to have you here. And and, uh, and I learned in this uh, lesson, one hour, a lot about you and also about your what, the way you are thinking. And I'm sure my audiences also feel the same way. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on The Social Hotelier Show, Make sure to visit our website, the Social Hotelier Show, blueberry.net. Where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Play or via RSS so you never miss a show. While you're at it, if you find value in this show, we appreciate a rating in Apple Podcast or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that will help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.